And thank you, congregation, for singing with such gusto. It sounded like you meant that one. And it allows guys who can't sing their way out of a wet paper bag the ability to even sing out a little louder when you're singing that loud. So thank you for that. This morning, we're starting a brand new series of messages. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you take your Bible and just kind of split it in the middle, you'll end up with the book of Psalms. After Psalms comes Proverbs. And then we come to that little known and seldom preached on book of Ecclesiastes. And that's where, if you get to the Songs of Solomon, although it may be interesting, or Isaiah, you've gone too far, you need to come back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is part of a collection of books that, in the Bible that are called wisdom literature, namely the book of Job, book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, and a number of psalms that are found in the Psalter. For example, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 37. There are several of them that are wisdom psalms as well. Surprisingly, Wisdom literature is there to teach us how to live wisely. Job teaches us how to live wisely when your life kind of unexpectedly, just for no reason at all, it seems, goes, goes off the rails, completely off the rails. Proverbs tells us how to live wisely in almost every conceivable circumstance of life. Songs of Solomon, how to live wisely within a marriage relationship. Ecclesiastes, how to live wisely in a post-Genesis chapter 3 world. In a world where, where sin has now entered the picture and infected every aspect of creation. In a world that, according to the Apostle Paul, is yet, even now, groaning as it waits for redemption. Ecclesiastes, does that word sound at all familiar to you? Ecclesiastes. Remember back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia. Ecclesia is a compound Greek word meaning to call out. The church of Jesus Christ, the church that Jesus Christ is building, consists of individuals who have been called out of the world, called out of their former way of life. They are called out by faith and are now trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and that makes them a part of this church this ecclesia that he is building so in the greek world not in the church world but in in the gentile world world that ecclesia was used in a broader sense to refer to those who've been called together as an assembly now look at ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1 the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Your translation may read teacher. 
The Hebrew word is, that's translated preacher or teacher is actually koheleth. It is used to identify a leader who calls together or addresses an assembly of people. The Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Old Testament was translated from Hebrew back about 200 years before Jesus was born so that Jews who could not read Hebrew any longer and were living in Egypt could read this Greek version of the New Testament. And that word used here that's translated preacher is ekklesites or ekklesia. So the name for this book is actually a transliteration of the Greek word used to translate that Hebrew word which we read as preacher or teacher. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. I confess that I was, and I'm going to probably do this someday just to warn you, but I will look for permission from the elders council before I do it. But I was tempted this week as I was studying this passage just to someday come and read the entire book. That will be the morning. I'll just begin in verse 1, chapter 1, and read right through the entire book. You know, we had a prof when I was in Bible college, or seminary maybe, but they had a college seminary chapel, and he got up one morning during the chapel, and he read through the entire book of Ruth, verse by verse. And I'm telling you, it was powerful. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. And he came to the end of the book, and he prayed, and we were dismissed. We're not going to do that this morning. I haven't got permission from the elders' council, so we'll just read uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he, is, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets and hastens to its place. It rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things. And also 
the latter things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were, who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As I was reading that, my mind was reminded again of the book of Ecclesiastes is is somewhat a dangerous book. Um, We can find ourselves going in two ditches rather than straight down the middle of the road. the ditch of skepticism or the ditch of hedonism. So I want you to be patient and let's walk through this book together over the weeks and months ahead and catch a real understanding of Solomon's assessment of life under the sun. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come humbled by your desire to communicate with us. We identify with the psalmist's reflection. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Thank you for this divinely inspired disclosure of yourself, your plans and purposes, and your perspectives on life. May the same spirit who ensured that human authors wrote exactly what you wanted written and then preserved these writings through the ages so that we have access to reliable copies of those original manuscripts. Would that same spirit now illumine our minds, convict us of sin, and then empower us to live obedient lives? Lives that will please and honor you. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I graduated from that Bible college in 1982. In May, actually, of 1982. I returned home and married the girl of my dreams in August. She's downstairs teaching the children this morning. We moved to... I think it's 1028 Cree Avenue over here just off of Devonshire. And uh, on December 1st, I started my vocational ministry as the associate pastor at Oxford Baptist Church just across town. And I have to admit that all of our dreams, Cynthia and my dreams, were becoming realities. 
And then on December 2nd, that's 24 hours later, we received a call from University Hospital in London, Ontario, inviting us to come the next day to hear the test results that had been done as a result of a hearing loss on my left side, actually a complete hearing loss over the last two years. The next day we attended an appointment with doctors that informed us that I had a brain tumor that required immediate surgery. I was 25 years old. Cynthia was 18. We'd been married just three months. And we didn't know it at the time, but our first child was on the way. We've all been there. You've been there. You've been there. You've been there. The death of a child, a life-threatening diagnosis, a failure that has deflated us, financial crises, relational breakdowns, a wayward, rebellious child, a season of depression, drug and or alcohol addiction, the inescapable grip of some personal sin. It's a gut punch that leaves you bent over or even writhing on the ground trying to catch your breath. We're doing the best we can and yet life happens. We're devastated, frustrated, angry, confused, depressed, disillusioned, completely discouraged. The book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us to be better prepared to respond to those realities of life by defining reality of life under the sun. Max Dupree in his book, Leadership is an Art, wrote, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between the two, he is both servant and debtor. The author of Ecclesiastes wants to fulfill the responsibility of a leader in each one of our lives. This book defines reality under the sun. I want us to consider three reasons this morning why we should listen to this assessment of life as presented in the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember Jesus saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Here are three reasons why you and I should listen up to the author of Ecclesiastes as he defines life under the sun. Number one, his credibility. Notice again verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
the author is self-identifying as the preacher, the teacher, the koheleth, or literally, the one who addresses an assembly. Three times in this chapter, verses 1 and 2, and also notice verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Again, middle of the book, chapter 7, verse 27. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher. And then in the closing chapter of the book, we find it used three times in just three verses. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 12. Vanity, or 14, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught people knowledge. Then again in verse 10. The preacher sought to be delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Not only is he the one who addressed an assembly, but he is, notice, the king, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. For those who know Old Testament history know that David had only one son that ever became king in Jerusalem. Solomon. According to the scriptures, he was the wisest man to ever live. What else do we know about Solomon? Of all the, I should say, all the things that he could have prayed for, Solomon asked for wisdom so that he might govern God's people well. Can you imagine? It's like a genie popping out of a bottle. You have three wishes, and his wish was for wisdom so that he might govern God's people well. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 in response to Solomon's prayer for wisdom, God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment or wisdom, administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have to be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29, the very next chapter. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. Ecclesiastes, these are a reflection of the wisest man who ever lived. What else do we know about him? Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 10. Notice verse 23. 1 Kings chapter 10. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth and riches and wisdom. Drop down to verse 27. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. Solomon was 
filthy rich. Verse 26. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He stationed them in chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Solomon's army was second to none. As a result, Israel experienced expanded borders and a season of peace that had never been known in this promised land. Chapter 11, verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Away from what? Keep reading, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart as the heart of his David, his father, had been. Wow. How sad is that? But Solomon could never say that he wasn't warned. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, these are God's instructions given to the nation of Israel. When they would ask for a king, these are his warnings. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else, his, or else his heart will be turned away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. I would say that based on what we read earlier, Solomon failed on every count. It's not intended to be prophetic in Deuteronomy, but every single thing came true in Solomon's life. Rather than Rags to riches, this is a riches to rags account. In the later years of his life, Solomon's heart was turned away from his God, the God of his father David. So perhaps Ecclesiastes is written near the end of his life. Solomon now has time and the opportunity to look in the rearview mirror. And as he reflects, on the realities of life under the sun, he writes. And we have the benefit of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now admittedly, in more recent times, with the rise of historic and literary criticism in the 17th century, some have argued against Solomon as the author of this book. But there are indicators sprinkled throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that would suggest and support his authorship. Look at chapter 1, verse 16 in Ecclesiastes. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. Wisest man on earth. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 speaks of building projects that match the kind of construction that Solomon had ordered back in 1 Kings chapter 7. And then chapter 2, verses 7, eight, seven and 8. I also collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Again, 
describing Solomon. In chapter 7, verse 28, though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. Only one in a thousand men is virtuous, but not one woman. That could be a veiled reference to the thousand brides and concubines that were his possession. Chapter 12, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The book of Proverbs is largely attributed to King Solomon. Think about it. Solomon had it all. The best of times became the worst of times. His greatest privileges were exchanged for a colossal failure. But writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, as one who had lived the highest highs and the lowest lows, he becomes our credible teacher-preacher, defining reality of life under the sun. Beloved, he who has ears, let him hear. Secondly, his leading premise. Look at verse 2, right at the beginning of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That has to be unprecedented repetition. Remember in our studies of the Gospel of John where we said in a culture that is primarily oral, they couldn't ask people to take out their highlighter or underlined words. All they could do is repeat for emphasis. So they drove home their point or they helped people to remember by repeating and repeating. But seriously, I think five times in a single verse is unprecedented. The New International Version reads, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. New Living Translation, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation, the message, smoke, nothing but smoke. That's what the quester says. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. Hebel is the actual Greek word used here. It's translated vanity in both the New American Standard Bible and also the English Standard Version. The Hebrew word appears 72 times in the Old Testament. 36 of those times are in this book. It's a key word. It's absolutely essential that we understand what Solomon is meaning when he uses it. Literally, it means wind or breath. Figuratively, Hebel means or refers to something like the wind or breath. Something that is temporary, transitory. Something that is passing away, changing, or something that is puzzling. Meaningless, empty, 
vanity, those words can be misleading. As one writer comments, why did Solomon bother to continue writing the book if everything is empty and meaningless? For if all of life is that absurd, end the discussion. End the book after verse 2. It's done, period. However, contrary to such negative conclusion, such a negative conclusion, the writer of Ecclesiastes went on to give a much more positive outlook in the chapters that followed. Dr. Walter Kaiser, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, titled Coping with Change, agrees with this author and suggests changing the translation of Hebel from vanity, emptiness, or meaningless to the more accurate sense of mist, change, transience, or puzzling. He goes on to say, Solomon sought to show us how we could enjoy what, is, what was worthwhile in our temporal life and how we could cope with the ebb and flow of change and with some foggy, puzzling issues after, after we assume God was in charge and there was purpose in all of existence. Some of you have heard my invocation that I often use in funeral services. It begins like this. So we come together this afternoon or this morning. We are confronted by one of those unavoidable, difficult realities of life. The scriptures speak of this. Lord, make me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, a mere hebel. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. In the New Testament, James speaks similarly, in a similar way, of a similar reality. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James chapter 4, verse 14. According to the Bible, the length of our lives is hebel. We are a mist that appears for a little while and then disappears like the morning fog. The deeds of men can also be hebel. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 6, the acquisition of tre treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. Hebel. Isaiah 49, verse 4, but I say, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. And vanity, hebel, all the things that we work at in life. The nature of idols are hebel. They are impotent. In Psalm 31, verse 6, the psalmist confesses that he hates those who regard vain or hebel idols. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. 
those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. There's a ring of truth in what Solomon is writing, plus our own personal experience in life with hebel of hevels, with vanity of vanities, it prevents us from dismissing Solomon's words too quickly. And certainly from dismissing this leading principle in his attempt to define reality of life under the sun. Beloved, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thirdly, the preacher's definitive conclusion. Cynthia and I had an older couple, an older retired couple that became very close and supportive friends while we were pastoring, a church, pastoring the church in Oakville, Ontario. I remember traveling the, with them to Montreal for a weekend adventure. They had lived in Montreal while Don was working for the Scotia Bank. And so they were the best tour guides we could ever ask for. But I remember Sue Ann confessing on that trip. I think I may have had a fiction that I was reading at the time. And she said that she could never read them without reading the last chapter first. I thought, what on earth? That's weird. She said, she went on to explain, well, if I don't do that, I'll never be able to sleep tonight. She had to know how the story was going to end before she could begin. I don't think that's such a bad idea when it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon makes his conclusion at the very end of the book. And so, like Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says we should approach life beginning with the end in mind, Maybe this will be a good way to approach the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And notice verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Does that sound familiar? That's repeated again and again throughout the book. And if that was his intent, if that was his purpose in writing to convince us that all of life is vanity, the book would have ended at verse 8. But he doesn't. He continues to write. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. That's an allusion to divine inspiration. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies 
to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. There's the purpose of the book. Verses 13 and 14. Let me read it again from the New Living Translation. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. For this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Fear God. Obey his commandments. God will judge us for everything we do. In other words, trust him. Justice delayed is not justice denied. There will be a judgment. As we study this book, we cannot lose sight of Solomon's stated purpose statement as we study his assessment of life under the sun. This is where he's taking us. This is the destination. In the end, we'll arrive in this place where we will fear God, obey him, and trust him. If we keep that in mind, it will help us respond appropriately to the circumstances of life that threaten to undermine what we knew, know to be true about our God, our good and faithful Father who is in heaven. In those times when we would like to know how it all fits together, and yet it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, fear him, obey him, trust him. That's the advice from the wisest man whoever lived, following his thorough assessment of life under the sun. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. One of the first commentaries I picked up this past week began with these words. Ecclesiastes is a most difficult of books of the Bible. One of the most difficult books of the Bible. But we've been here before. Didn't we read that at the beginning of the Gospel of John? That it was the most difficult gospel to understand? And two and a half years later, we crossed the finish line and we celebrated. Folks, I'll guarantee you that I will not take two and a half years to get through the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm really looking forward to digging into this book that is promising to engage us Defining reality of life under the sun. Ecclesiastes is going to teach us how to live in the midst of brokenness. You see, beloved, we, we are less than perfect people. Living in a less than perfect world. Surrounded by less than perfect circumstances. Ecclesiastes is going to teach us to engage in that world. Be fully engaged in life not necessarily when things go wrong because of something we did but in a world that is broken 
in a world that is wrong. Let me conclude by giving three implications that I've been pondering and that you can ponder with me as a result of this introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. Number one, your life is not intended to be empty, meaningless, vain. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Another translation, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That's why Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died a horrible death to pay the wages for my sin and your sin so that we might have life and have it to the full. Folks, that's not an empty, meaningless, vain life. Secondly, life can, at times, be confusing, frustrating, puzzling, disappointing, discouraging. You could add to the list, I'm sure. Again, Jesus, while preparing his closest ministry companions for his death and departure in John chapter 16, verse 33, said that in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation, times of testing. And in those times, especially, we will have to walk by faith. Life in the mist. You see, thirdly, as believers, life requires us to walk by faith and not by sight. And what would that look like? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Fearing, obeying, and trusting God. Even when life doesn't make sense, and even when we've run out of answers, and are left with just questions, the old hymn has it right. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Over the next several weeks and even months, King Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, is going to help us to do just that, to trust and obey, and to fear God while living life in the mist. Let's pray. Father, you're faithful and true. 
God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Yes, you will. And yet the circumstances of our lives continue to test our resolve. Help our anchor to hold in the storms and even on those cloudy days of our lives. Keep fear and discouragement from winning the day. Give us courage and strength, patience and endurance to face the life threatening and daily inconveniences that are sure to come. Enable us to remain faithful as we walk by faith, encouraging and cheering one another on. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Sorry, folks. We were trying out a new microphone this morning, and it's not working, so I have to come up to the... I'd rather be down below, but let me read this benediction from the book of Jude as we close our service. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.